Welcome to Bammer and Me. This is Mike Balaban. My guest today is Peter Tatchell, the noted LGBTQ human rights campaigner, uh, born in Australia, spent most of his life in England. Uh, you know, Peter, we're really grateful for your willingness to join us today. It's my great pleasure. Um, I need to acknowledge that, you know, first of all, Peter and I were born the same year, so we're both 71 years old. Peter, as another shared fact, I, in watching the documentary about you, I noticed that you have had five relationships, so have I. At any event, uh, his life's been so long and his accomplishments so varied that we won't be able to cover everything in as much depth as I'd like to today, but I think we'll get a lot of it under our belts. So can you please give us a short summary of your life and history to provide us some context for the questions that I'd like to ask you today? I've been campaigning for 56 years for LGBT plus and other human rights causes. During this time, I've been involved in more than 3,000 protests, nonviolent direct action, and sometimes civil disobedience. I've been arrested over 100 times, been subjected to more than 300 violent assaults, including 50 attacks upon my flat uh, with bricks, bottles, iron bars, three arson attempts, even a bullet through my front door. But I'm still here and I'm still campaigning. I can't imagine the courage it takes to face some of the situations that I watched you in, in the Netflix documentary, going into Russia and other hostile environments, knowing that you may in fact be assaulted, arrested, and put under uh, extreme duress. How do you, how do you prepare for that? Well, first let me say you mentioned the Netflix documentary "Hating Peter Tatchell." Um, it's currently streaming and has been for the last couple of years. Um, it was not my film. It was made by an independent documentary maker, Christopher Amos. He wanted to tell my story, and what he's done is put into that documentary about fifteen of my key campaigns over the last five decades. So it's a snapshot, just a snapshot, of the work I've been doing for LGBT plus rights, but also for other democracy and human rights issues in Britain and indeed around the world. I agreed to collaborate with Chris Amos because I want to show that social change is possible and to give people tips and ideas on how to achieve it. So I hope that in watching this documentary, people will become themselves successful change makers and that they will make their contribution to a better society and a better world. I'm a, an activist. I've been on nonprofit boards for 25, 30 years uh, consecutively. And, you know, every nonprofit organization has a theory of change. And I was really interested to hear you explain yours, and I'm not sure there's time enough to, to give it justice, but uh, it was very persuasive. But in the course of, of affecting that change, one ends up engendering a great deal of opposition and a lot of uh, negative attention. You know, the documentary points out a lot of it, just the title, Hating Peter Tatchell. What does it feel like to be the center of attention and apparently be disliked by so many and so intensely. Well, I'm pretty well known as the um, champion of hopeless lost causes, but I never see them as hopeless and lost. I see them as righteous causes, and I work with others 
to make them not a marginal minority viewpoint, but the majority consensus. And we've seen that in Britain with LGBT plus rights. When I first began campaigning in the late 1960s, um, LGBT plus people were way out on the fringes. Uh, we were marginalized, demonized, vilified, and there was very little public support. Almost no politicians supported us. But I just had the vision that one day this would change and that we had to be the change makers. So against all those obstacles and all those hurdles, all that um, hatred, I, with others, in the Gay Liberation Front in London in the early days, in the 1970s, we championed the just cause of our community. And of course, eventually, over time, we did triumph. <laughs> the ideas that we espoused back in the late 60s or early 1970s, which were, you know, demonized and denounced as extremist are now the mainstream. And that shows the power of people to be agents of social change. You know, in, in the documentary, one point early on, you said that you foresaw that it would take 50 years to achieve the goals of the LGBTQ rights mo movement. Did you honestly think that far ahead and see that happening over that time span? But well, of course, I grew up in Australia in the 1960s, and the daily press and nightly TV news bulletins were dominated by the Black Civil Rights Movement in America and the movement against the war in Vietnam, which Australia was involved with alongside the United States. Now, when I realized I was gay at the age of 17 in 1969, there were no LGBT plus organizations in my home city of Melbourne, Australia. No helplines, no switchboards, no counseling services, and definitely no campaign groups. So I had no reference point, but I understood that struggle for LGBT plus freedom was a just one, and I wanted to be part of it. But in the absence of a reference point, I looked to the Black Civil Rights Movement as my goal and template. Now I adopted their ideals and values and transferred them to the struggle for LGBT plus freedom. So I was very much influenced by the nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience of Dr. Martin Luther King and the Freedom Riders in the Deep South during the 1960s. I transferred those ideas and methods to the contemporary struggle for LGBT plus equality and liberation. If I recall correctly, your first protest action was in support of Aboriginal rights in Australia at 15 or so. I was going to ask you about your childhood and where that impulse to support the underdog came from. But in watching the documentary, I think it made clear, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that now, how your own struggles in your family, particularly with your stepfather, may have in fact been the, the gasoline that lit the fire in you that made you want to stand up for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a very poor working class family. My father was an engineer in an engineering factory, um, did night shifts. Um, but a lot of our family income went on medical bills because at the time there was no public socialized medicine in Australia. So my mother had chronic 
acute life-threatening asthma. And so a lot of our family income went on medical bills and hospital bills. Um, some of it was was free, but some of it had to be paid for. So we were we were very poor, even by ordinary working class standards. And that gave me a sense of burning injustice. That why should we suffer because our mother happened to be so ill? Plus, of course, you now I was brought up in a very deeply religious family. My parents were sort of evangelical Pentecostalists, um, pretty extreme, I'd say borderline fundamentalist. But I also became aware of the other side of Christianity, you know, the good Samaritan, love thy neighbor as thyself, um, those kind of things. And I translated that into not only the way I led my own personal life, but into the way society should be organized, that we should have a society based on the principle of loving thy neighbor and doing to thy neighbor what we would have thy neighbor do unto us. So that's, I guess, where, where it originated. And as I said, you know, I was very, very inspired by the Black Civil Rights Movement in America. I was thousands of miles away in Australia. I was white. I could see, you know, very clearly from an early age that this was a just struggle. I remember the pivotal moment was in 1963 when white racists bombed the black church in Birmingham, Alabama, where four young girls about my own age were murdered. Now, I was 11 years old, but I just instinctively knew that was so, so wrong. So that led me to follow and, and be inspired by the struggle of African-Americans for justice. And I thought, well, if they can fight for their justice and freedom, and they deserve to, and they deserve to win, then so can LGBT plus people. Shifting gears a second, you know, we each go through our own process of figuring out that we're different. And in particular, when we are LGBTQ, that our, our attractions to other human beings of the same gender or that our identification with uh, the, a gender other than the one we're born into, how, how and when did you first begin to realize that you were probably gay? Well, I didn't until relatively late, uh, until the age of 17. Prior to that, I thought I was straight. And I, as a devout son of evangelical Christians, you know, dreamed of the white marriage and the um, suburban family life. Uh, that was what I aspired to. Um, but of course, when I began to question my own sexuality, um, I should have actually been totally revolted and, and driven by incredible guilt and shame. But I was a very rational kind of person, you know. I had very good public schooling, but think critically, you know, don't just believe what you're told. So I thought to myself, well, the Bible says homosexuality is this terrible sin, but that, of course, is in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ has never recorded anywhere of saying anything about same-sex relations. Plus, if there's no harm caused to anybody and it's between consenting adults and you love each other, then how can that possibly be wrong? So when I had my first gay sex experience, I remember lying back on the pillow with uh, the man I just had sex with and think to myself, clearly the Bible has got it wrong. <laughs> Obviously, I'm gay. You know, this was such an incredibly fulfilling sexual and emotional experience. So I just had no scintilla of doubt or anxiety 
or shame whatsoever. I thought the Bible's got it wrong. There's nothing wrong with being LGBT. I wish we we all could go through that uh, immediate realization and and self acceptance. Most most of us don't. But the other thing I wanted to say is that while you may feel that it was somewhat late at seventeen. Uh, in that era, it was extremely young. Most people, if they came out, didn't do it until their 20s or 30s. Mm. True. How did you How did you settle upon the idea of leaving Australia and moving to London at, at such a young age? That was around the same time, wasn't it? Uh, it was a little bit later, when I was 19. I was always described as, quote, a very curious boy. <laughs> I was always asking questions. I had a thirst for knowledge. And one aspect of that was that I was very interested and wanted to learn about other people and other cultures in different countries. You know, I could see that Australia was this little European outpost in the Southern Pacific and Indian Oceans. Um, you know, we were just a tiny speck in, in terms of humanity. So I always wanted to travel. But the real impetus was, of course, Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War alongside the United States. We too had the draft. And although I initially, uh, in my early teens, bought the government propaganda, this was a just war against communist heathens. Uh, in high school, I studied American history. And one of the segments of the course was the history of Indochina and Vietnam. And I, I read books and read about what was going on in the Vietnam War, the, the terrible war crimes that have been committed, particularly by the United States, the mass bombing of um, innocent villages, you know, the torture and execution of prisoners of war. And I just thought, I'm not going to be part of this. So my plan was to refuse uh, to even register for the draft. And if I'd stayed in Australia and pursued that course of action, I would have faced two years in prison. Now, this was not long after I began my first serious relationship. You know, this person I absolutely adored and loved. And the idea of being apart from him for two years was was a bit much. Now, too much for me, for me to really cope with. Plus, of course, the idea of refusing the draft was to get, you know, a thousand or two thousand young men to refuse the draft, get them all put in prison to create a political crisis. But the government was much more canny. They'd only selectively arrest and jail a handful at a time, and everybody else would be under de facto house arrest. You couldn't work, you couldn't move. Um, so somewhat reluctantly, I decided uh, with my partner to leave Australia and come to England. Now, I intended to only stay for a couple of years or so, travel around Europe, see a bit of the world. But I knew that all the polls indicated that the Conservative government would be voted out the next election, and the Labour opposition was committed to both ending Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War and also ending the draft. So within two or three years, the prospect of amnesty was there. But of course, by that time, <laughs> I got settled in London. You know, I got a nice job, a nice flat. Um, I got involved in the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. And, um, you know, the temporary stay became permanent. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. You quickly immersed yourself in the emerging British gay rights movement. Was that just natural? Did you just kind of fall into it? 
Well, of course, as I said, you know, back in Melbourne, there were no LGBT plus organisations, let alone campaign groups. So to come to London and find that there um, was just awesome. You know, this was this was I'd been championing everybody else's rights, the rights of Indigenous Black Australians against the Vietnam War and the draft, um, against the death penalty, lots of causes. But here was a chance for me to champion my own cause, that of a gay man and to challenge the homophobia, biphobia and transphobia of that era. So I was very, very excited. In fact, as on the second day in London, I saw a sticker on a lamppost in Oxford Street, central London, advertising the meetings of the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. Five days later, I was at my first meeting, and within a month, I was helping organise many of the Gay Liberation Front's very spectacular street protests. The, the Gay Liberation Front in New York was spawned by uh, Stonewall in June of 69. Was this uh, kind of an outgrowth of the same organization or just happened to use the same name? I happened to use the same name. What happened was um, a friend of mine, Aubrey Walter, had uh, he was a student at the London School of Economics. He went over to the United States in the summer of 1969-1970 and met with people from the newly formed New York Gay Liberation front. And uh, he came back to London with a colleague of his, Bob Mellors, and they together organised the first meeting of what became the London Gay Liberation Front. So it was adapting the name, but a lot of the things about the movement were both similar and uniquely British. I want to just quickly read a few of the things you got involved with, because they were so widespread. You co-organised the UK's first Pride Parade. You protested on behalf of women's liberation. You got arrested in Berlin in 1972 for staging the first ever gay rights protest in a communist country. 1973. You, 1973. you urged British military personnel to refuse to serve on nuclear vessels. You wrote a guidebook on how to survive the AIDS crisis in the 80s when AIDS arrived. And in 1987, launched the UK's first organization dedicated to defending the human rights of people with HIV. That was the same month that ACT UP was formed in the U.S. Uh, you also got involved with social justice causes across many other non-LGTB groups and in many other countries. How did you keep track of all these causes? And was there a danger of spreading yourself too thin? Well, I had bundles of energy and enthusiasm. <laughs> so it was the passion and idealism that, that drew me on and forward and upwards. Um, but yeah, I, I did encompass a lot of different campaigns. And of course, it wasn't just me. I was working with others. And I always say it's our collective effort that makes the change. You even ran for parliament in 1983. And the, the uh, documentary makes clear what a dispiriting experience that was. By, by general consensus, it was the dirtiest, most violent, and definitely most homophobic election in Britain in the 20th century. Yeah, it's kind of amazing after watching your experience in that, that it didn't cause a lot of your overall zeal for the cause to, to crumble. In fact, the exact opposite. In particular, the homophobia of that by-election spurred me on. It, 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 it made me realise just what an uphill battle we faced and how important it was to not merely continue, but accelerate and escalate the campaign for LGBT plus freedom. You know, if if I asked you, out of all of the many efforts that you've initiated, led, and participated in, could you 
pick one that you're most proud of? I know that's like trying to ask you to choose among your children, but you know, what would your answer be? You're right. It's, it's pretty impossible. But I will tell you this. I would say that the campaign with the LGBT plus direct action group Outrage in the early 1990s against police harassment and victimization is something that I'm very proud of. Back in 1967, there was a partial limited decriminalization of male homosexuality, but only in England and Wales, not in Scotland or Northern Ireland until much later, and not even later still uh, to the armed forces and the merchant navy. But you know, that meant that many aspects of gay male life, in fact, most aspects of gay male life were still criminalized under laws, in some cases dating back to 1533, the law against sodomy dated back to 1533 during the reign of King Henry VIII, and the law against all other sexual contact between men, such as oral sex or mutual masturbation, dated back to 1885. And it was that law, of course, that sent Oscar Wilde to prison in 1895 and resulted in 1954, uh, 1952 rather, Alan Turing, the great computer genius, being uh, convicted of consenting sex. And rather than choosing prison, he chose female hormones, effectively a form of chemical castration. Both those laws were not repealed until 2003 in England and Wales, uh, until 2008 in Northern Ireland, and not until 2013 in Scotland. So the full decriminalization is, is relatively recent. In the 1990s, in the wake of the Conservative governor, Margaret Thatcher, waging a, a, a moral political war against LGBT plus people, and in the wake of the AIDS panic and hysteria, there was a huge spike in the arrest of gay and bisexual men for consenting behavior from the mid to late 80s uh, through to the 1990s. So together with my colleagues from Outrage, we sought to change that. We began by having negotiations with the police at New Scotland Yard police headquarters. They would give us tea and sandwiches, shake our hands and smile, but then go away and order more raids and more arrests. So when this was quite clearly just a PR exercise, Outrage walked out. And we began a very high profile campaign of direct action and civil disobedience against the police, invading and occupying police stations, exposing undercover police argent provocateurs, even disrupting press conferences by the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. We also put on the media um, same-sex couples who were arrested for merely kissing or cuddling or holding hands. And they got masses and masses and masses of courage, uh, coverage and even people who weren't necessarily particularly pro-LGBT+, thought this was a gross misuse of police resources when officers claimed they were too busy to deal with domestic um, violence or street burglaries or you know car theft, things like that. So we very quickly won the battle of hearts and minds. So the police pleaded with us in the wake of all this bad publicity to come back to negotiate. And we did. But we came back with a checklist of, I think, a dozen policies for a non-homophobic policing. Uh, these were ideas that we dreamt up, but also were taken from best practice by more liberal progressive police forces in cities like Copenhagen, Amsterdam, and Stockholm. 
And the police police were completely thrown because they just saw us, saw us as a protest group. But when we had these practical, radical but practical uh, proposals, uh, they were stumped because they were perfectly reasonable and, and perfectly sensible. So the upshot was that within a year, the police had agreed to uh, three quarters of our demands for non-homophobic policing policy. And within three years, the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting same-sex behavior fell by two thirds, the biggest, fastest fall ever recorded. You know, we literally saved thousands of gay and bisexual men from arrest and criminal conviction and the knock-on effect often of rejection by their families, uh, dismissal by their employers and eviction by their landlords. So that's one battle I'm really proud of, but it wasn't me, of course, alone. It was me together with many others. It sounds, again, as an American who's more familiar with our political organizations here, like the Gay Men's Health Crisis and ACT UP, it sounded kind of like in England, you maybe had the equivalent with Outrage being the ACT UP and Stonewall being the, the GMHC, the more uh, uh, palatable, if you will, uh, partner that was a lot easier for the authorities to deal with. You also, it sounds like you actually went from what was a pretty re uh, repressive regime of laws that were homophobic to actually adding on top of that Section 28 under Margaret Thatcher, which made it illegal to promote homosexuality. So it actually got worse for a while. Section 28 was the first new anti-LGBT plus law in Britain for a century. And what it did was prohibit the so-called promotion of homosexuality by local authorities, meaning municipal uh, councils, health authorities, and education authorities. They were not allowed to do anything that could be construed as promoting, supporting, or endorsing uh, same-sex relations or LGBT plus people. And that led to masses and masses of self-censorship in order to avoid prosecution. It's interesting. We had the similar kind of repression in uh, homosexual references in the media, et cetera, in the late 70s and early 80s in the U.S. with Anita Bryant and uh, and company. And as you probably are aware, the same thing is now going on again with Governor DeSantis in Florida and, and their group. Is there a similar repression taking place in the U.K. right now or an effort to do the same? Well, overall... You know, up, up until 1999, Britain had by volume the largest number of anti-LGBT plus laws of any country in the world, some of them dating back centuries. 14 years later, with the legalization of same-sex marriage, all those homophobic laws had been repealed. That's the fastest, most successful law reform campaign in British history, and perhaps even in world history. I can't think of any marginalized, discriminated minority that's had so many laws abolished against it in such a short space of time. And that's a huge tribute to the tens of thousands of LGBT plus people and straight friends and allies who helped make that possible. Again, it was our collective effort that got the change. But you're right, the trend towards greater support for the LGBT plus community has been going in reverse in recent years. So the Conservative government promised to ban conversion therapy, you know, the practice by which therapists or churches or others 
seek to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. It's been condemned by all the world's leading psychiatric, um, medical and counseling organizations as unethical, abusive, harmful and ineffective. Now, the Conservative government promised to repeal it way back in 2018, more than five years ago. And just this week, they've announced, despite reiterating that promise at least six times in the last few years, they've now confirmed they're going to drop it. That pledge is now history. It's, it's in the dustbin. The other big betrayal has been over trans rights. Um, the public consultation said that people wanted to ease and simplify the process by which trans people could change their legal documents. Immediately after the con consultation closed, despite the consultation being in favour, the government ruled against it. And they're still ruling against it. And now they're trying to enact more and more repressive anti-trans policies, including things, proposals, for example, that there should be new restrictions on young people wishing to transition, both in terms of treatments and in terms of being able to socially transition by wearing gender-affirming attire and using gender-affirming pronouns. So we are going backwards. We've had no progress um, recently at all. And on the wider picture, the treatment of LGBT plus refugees fleeing persecution is utterly appalling. Um, last year, um, the government, when the Taliban took over, promised that it would give safe haven to LGBTs at risk of um, death or worse, uh, well, pr imprisonment, torture or death from the Taliban. But when I presented the government with the names of 860 Afghan LGBTs who'd all been vetted in country by underground LGBT activists, not a single one has been granted refuge. So again, we are seeing a government that has reneged on its promises and, you know, particularly when it comes to LGBT plus people, they get sometimes get interned in immigration detention centres where a report has recently exposed them having been verbally, verbally and physically abused on the government's watch, at the government's expense. Um, it's really, really shocking. I interviewed uh, former U.S. congressman, the first openly LGTB congressman, Barney Frank, earlier this year. And we had an interesting conversation. You know, I was talking about the backlash going on right now. And he actually pushed back on that concept. He said, I don't think there's a backlash. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, we went through the same thing in 1969, 70, et cetera, in, in the U.S. after Stonewall because most Americans did not know anyone who was LGBTQ. And the result was uh, an alienation, a feeling of, of uh, separation and lack of identity with those of us who were fighting for our rights. So they opposed us. But gradually, partly with the acceleration of the AIDS crisis, we won those rights. We became recognizable to everyone. Almost everybody knows somebody, at least gay or lesbian, in their life. Uh, and we are legal in terms of marriage. So the same thing is going on right now with trans rights. Most people don't know someone. And it's going to take 10 or 15 years, unfortunately. But the likelihood is that we will end up with the same outcome. Once people know someone who's trans, they won't be able to demonize them the way they're doing right now. But it's going to be an uncomfortable and a lengthy process. 
What do you think about that? No, I, I agree. I'd also say that, unfortunately, backlash is often an integral part of social change. That when you're pushing against established conventions, against age-old prejudices, inevitably the people who want to maintain power and privilege lash back. You know, they fight back. They want to resist the change. And that's what backlash is all about. I mean, I am old enough uh, to remember the black civil rights movement in America. And it's true that in many instances, when the civil rights people went into the Deep South, it led to a spike in attacks upon African-Americans. And of course, nobody wanted that. But it was precisely because they were challenging the denial of voting rights and segregation that white supremacists lashed out and fought back. And so that was a terrible thing. But we're seeing the same here with LGBT+. Plus. Um, but as you say, particularly on the trans issue, it is a rebellion, a fight back, a sort of last gasp of those who want to maintain the transphobic status quo. We actually experienced the same thing with white supremacist rights in the US right now. There's, a, there's that last gasp of racism, uh, which is pretty strong. I've found another kind of parallel uh, between you and Barney Frank. In watching the documentary about you, it talked about the fact that you outed 10 Anglican bishops who were homophobically demonizing gay rights within their own churches, really at some cost to themselves, but because professionally it worked for them. And you got a lot of flack for doing that because everybody should have their own right to come out on their own time, et cetera. Well, Barney Frank has the Barney Frank rule that if there's you know, hypocritical uh, behavior of people who are gay themselves but are harming gay other gays, that in fact you are justified in outing them. How, how would you describe your decision process and what you did in, the, in that instance uh, with the Anglican bishops? Well, the Church of England at the time, we're talking about the uh, 1990s, its official position was that homosexuality was inferior to heterosexuality, and this justified discrimination in law, and that gay people were sinners and must repent. And of course, the church, as a consequence, was supporting the maintenance of discriminatory, homophobic, biophobic, and transphobic laws. So we felt that given that there were bishops in the church who were themselves gay, but were aligning with this church and not dissenting from its policies, that they were being both homophobic and hypocritical. So we made it very clear that if they continued on this stance, we would expose them. Not because they were gay and in the closet, but because they were two-faced. They were saying one thing in public and doing something different in private. So it was calling out their hypocrisy and double standards. Now, they didn't think that we would dare out them. But that's what we did. On the opening day of the General Synod, the Parliament of the Church of England in 1994, we stood on the steps of church headquarters and held up signs calling on bishops to, to tell the truth about their sexuality because they were preaching in church that we should all tell the truth, but they weren't telling the truth. 
Now, the upshot of this action was, of course, myself as the lead spokesperson, but the whole group was, you know, publicly subjected to an horrendous hate campaign by the church, politicians, and the media. But we didn't care. We were telling the truth. We were calling out hypocrisy. And what we thought was so strange is all the people who were condemning us over hypocrisy were the very same ones who were quite happy to call out Tory MPs who preached family values and then had adulterous affairs. They thought it was right to expose them, but not to expose these bishops. In the end, only one of those bishops denied being gay. And we had absolutely cast iron proof and evidence that he was. As far as I recall, none of the bishops ever again said anything or acted in any way that could be construed as endorsing church homophobia. And in fact, some of those bishops eventually began speaking out for LGBT plus rights. On top of that, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church, as a result of what we did, organized for the first ever time liaison between the LGBT plus Christian movement and the Church of England. So he set up a senior Church of England bishop to liaise with the LGBT plus community, which had always previously been refused. And then the final you know, icing on the cake was that the bishops were due to hold their annual conference just a month or two afterwards. And homosexuality and LGBT plus rights was not on the agenda. But because of what we did, it was on the agenda. And that uh, meeting of the bishops passed what was at that time the strongest, most powerful condemnation of homophobia the church had ever issued. So those were three wins as a result of what we did. We succeeded. We were demonized and had, I had to live with death threats and hate mail for months afterwards. But hey, we succeeded in getting those three positive changes. I'm going to surprise you with something I didn't forewarn you I would speak about. In watching the, the documentary, I was amused and pleased to hear you discuss your experience with the late dictator of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, and your involvement with protest actions against him when he visited the UK and how that changed the public perception of you. Can you describe that? Well, I'd been asked by Zimbabwean human rights defenders to try and do something to highlight um, the gross abuses of human rights by the Mugabe regime. This was in the late 1990s, uh, when kidnapping and abductions, disappearances, torture, and extrajudicial killings were being perpetrated by Mugabe's regime against critics and opposition politicians. It was almost unreported in the outside world. So my aim was to do something dramatic to highlight those abuses. What I hit upon was the idea of using international human rights law to try and get him arrested and put on trial for torture. And in particular, I settled on the United Nations Convention Against Torture, 1984, which has a universal jurisdiction. Under that law, which is incorporated into British law and the law of many other countries, any state official who condones authorized or acquiesces in acts of torture can be put on trial and sentenced. Now, I had evidence that from Amnesty International 
that President Mugabe had authorized the torture of two black journalists in Zimbabwe. So that was the legal case. I knew that no government would be willing to put him on trial. So I used the power of citizen's arrest. Under common law in Britain, any person has the right to arrest another person if they have evidence that they've committed a crime. They must then, of course, call the police and hand them over. So that was my tactic. I tried it first in London in 1999. Myself and three members of the LGBT plus group Outrage ambushed his motorcade in the street. We ran in front of his limousine, forcing it to screech to a halt. Then we ran behind the limousine, so it couldn't move forward and couldn't move backward. I ran from the side, opened the rear car door, amazingly it was unlocked, reached in and placed Mugabe under arrest. We then summoned the police. The police came, they were absolutely gobsmacked that I'd arrested the president of Zimbabwe, but they weren't interested. They, they knocked all the uh, affidavits and legal papers out of my hand and myself and my three outraged colleagues were carted off and spent the next few hours in uh, Belgravia police station. Meanwhile, President Mugabe was given a police escort to go Christmas shopping at Harrods. That was the end of that. Um, the Governor Tony Blair refused to arrest him, even though we had the clear legal evidence that he'd condoned and acquiesced in acts of torture, contrary to British and international human rights law. Then two years later, I got a tip off that President Mugabe was going to Brussels for a state visit and meeting with the Belgian prime minister. At very short notice, like two days notice, I jumped on a plane and ambushed him in the lobby of the Hilton Hotel as he was leaving to meet the Belgian prime minister. Uh, but this time, um, I got right next to him and, and oh, 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 he was about to shake my hand because I was I, I, I tricked them because I sort of walked up to him smiling and beaming, holding out my hand like a well-wisher. So the security guards let me walk right through into the center. And just as he was about to hold my hand, they must have realized who I was. I was arrested and eventually beaten unconscious and left in the gutter. But it was all filmed and went all around the world. And I never wanted to get that terrible, terrible beating. But it was very effective because people concluded if President Mugabe is prepared to beat up a peaceful protester in the heart of a European capital city in broad daylight and in front of the world's media, just imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one is watching. So it really helped put the abuse of human rights in Zimbabwe on front pages and TV bulletins all across the world. And But the point of the documentary was that for those who uh, reviled you, if that's the right way to describe it, a lot of them suddenly became your biggest champion. You were supporting something they agreed with. Well, that's right. And I, I think some of that support was a bit suspect. <laughs> if I'd been trying to do that with George Bush or Tony Blair, I don't think the support would have been so forthcoming. I, I agree. I think there may, may, have been a, may have been a whiff of racism there uh, underlying that support. But hey, it has since then given me a platform I never previously had. I'd always been campaigning on a whole range of human rights issues, not just LGBT plus ones, but no one really noticed or no one really bothered. But that made it very clear that I wasn't just a single issue campaigner, that I was standing for everyone's human rights, of which LGBT plus rights are a one, but a very important part. That, that leads to, logically to the next point, which is it has been said that you're a performance artist. 
And I think there's some truth to that, but only in service of achieving a mission. In order to be effective as a human rights campaigner in today's world, you have to get attention. Uh, and that means you need to get the media lined up and you need to have the cameras focused and you need to have the lighting correct and you need to be adept at, at directing the attention where you want it to. How would you deal with the accusation that you're a performance artist, not a human rights activist? Well, <laughs> I take that as sort of a compliment in its own way. And uh, I must say, when I when I left school, I first did work in art and design. So, you know, art and artistic expression has always been very important to me. And I have tried to translate that into the way I do human rights campaigning and politics. Um, but that aside, I mean, every successful human rights campaign in history, from the struggle for votes for women to the African-American struggle in the US, it's always been about getting media attention, not for its own sake, but in order to shine a light on injustices, to raise public awareness about an issue. So it's okay if you organize a street corner meeting or a pamphlet and you distribute it in the street, but you'll reach perhaps a few hundred people at the most. If you get on primetime TV, you're reaching an audience of millions and millions and millions. And that's what you need if you want to change hearts and minds. So it's a strategy to use the media as a way of highlighting and generating discussion about human rights issues. And off the back of that, of course, that's exactly how we've won here in Britain and indeed in the United States and elsewhere. You know, effective campaigning has to be media savvy. I've always said a protest is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And that end is to put people in power who are doing bad things under pressure to change. But it's also to get media coverage in order to raise public awareness and generate debate. And through that debate, to change hearts and minds. I think in 2011 or 12, you formed the Peter Taschel Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about how that operates, what its aims are, how do you fund it, et cetera. As someone who works on a lot of nonprofit boards, I'm always interested in the mechanics of moving movements forward like that. Well, in fact, I did not set up what is now called the Peter Tuttrell Foundation. A group of friends got together and said, look, it's, it's not sustainable. You've been doing, for 40 years, you've been doing all this work unpaid. You're living a hand-to-mouth existence. You can't even afford to turn on the heating during winter. You never have time to, you know, can't afford to go to the theatre or the cinema. We've got to give you some funding so you can have a reasonable standard of living, not a lavish one, but a reasonable standard of living, and also to better fund the campaign so they can achieve more. So they set up an organisation, and I never wanted it to be called the Peter Tatchell Foundation, but they said, well, you've got name recognition. If we call it the Freedom Foundation or something like that, or the LGBT Foundation, no one will know who's behind it or what it's about. But if we use your name, that will get public and, and media interest. So somewhat reluctantly, I agreed. And we are a very small uh, human rights and LGBT rights NGO based in London. Uh, there's only me, my assistant, Pliny Sukumani, who is an Indian guy from Mauritius, and uh, Simon uh, who is part-time on media and communications. So we're, we're basically a two-and-a-half-bit operation, and we do roughly half of our work is on LGBT plus rights and half of it's on other issues like democracy, civil liberties, uh, and human rights. 
Again, there's about a 50-50 split between work in the UK and supporting and amplifying other human rights and LGBT campaigns in those other countries. But it works hand in hand with the campaigns that you are advancing. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, we we do collaborative efforts with campaigners in Uganda and Iran and, you know, many, many, many countries. So, you know, with the victories, quote unquote, that the LGBTQ movement has achieved over the last generation, most notably non-discrimination laws in some places, you know, same-sex marriage rights in many places, you know, what do you think of the major battles uh, relating to homophobia and unequal treatment that still remain and that you want to remain passionately involved with? Well, I mentioned the battle to ban conversion therapy and also to allow simplification of the process by which trans people change their legal documents. But I think the bigger picture is a global one. It's really interesting going back to the early days of the Gay Liberation Front. It was very British focused. And I was one of about the only person kept on piping up and saying, what about the rest of the world? You know, LGBT plus freedom isn't just a UK thing. It's, it's a global battle. And I remember I organized the Gay Liberation Front's first international campaign in 1971 against repression in Cuba. You know, the setting up of labor re-education camps where probably thousands of, of gay and bisexual men, lesbian women, trans people were sent under very harsh conditions. Um, now I'm, a, I'm on the left of politics, but you know there are lots of good things that Cuba has done in terms of healthcare and education, but that is no excuse for the political repression then or now. You know, we have to, in my book, we have to have a socialism that is democratic, that uh, people can choose and elect their government and not have it imposed upon them. And so that first campaign was just uh, the start of many, many international LGBT plus campaigns that I've been doing ever since. Uh, and again, it's all about solidarity. It's not about imposing my views on other people or countries. It's about solidarity with people in those countries who are fighting for their rights. So we, we spoke to Cuban exiles who'd escaped, gay Cuban exiles who'd escaped, and they told us the horror stories, and they encouraged us to do these protests at the Cuban embassy in London. Now, I think in terms of right now, the, the biggest battle is still the global one. There are currently 66 countries that criminalize same-sex relations. Just over half criminalize both male and female homosexuality. There are 11 Muslim-majority countries that continue to have the death penalty for same-sex relations. And there are 43 countries, either through explicit laws or the interpretation of generic morality laws that criminalize trans people. So, you know, that's the real front line of the battle for LGBT plus freedom today. How do we mobilize people to care about others not in our country? Well, I think, you know, the starting point is that queer oppression is not confined to any one country. It's been a historic, millennia-long persecution, transcending national boundaries, politics, religion, or beliefs. It transcends class, culture, nations. We are one big global queer family, and we have to support each other like all good families do. So for me, it's about re recognizing that you may be primarily concerned about 
LGBT plus rights in your specific city or even neighborhood. But there is a bigger world out there. And there are people in other countries who don't have half or even a quarter or even a tenth of the rights that we have in Western countries like Britain and the United States. They are the ones who are suffering the worst, the most. They're the ones that really need our help. And you know, supporting an LGBT plus organization in Africa or South Asia or the Caribbean, it doesn't take a lot of money. But for them, relatively small amounts of money can make a huge difference. You know, to buy a photocopier, a computer, a mobile phone, a camera. Those are the kind of basic campaign tools that they need. And of course, you know, some of them also need officers, you know, some need staff. So it's not just about financial, of course, you know, financial support is important, but also it's about amplifying their voices. You know, if you go on Twitter or X as it's now known, you will see lots of LGBT plus groups in, in countries like Cameroon and Nigeria in West Africa, uh, like Kenya and Uganda in East Africa, like Pakistan and Afghanistan in South Asia, like Jamaica and Grenada in the Caribbean. These are all countries where the battle for LGBT plus rights is taking place under much more dangerous and menacing conditions, where LGBT plus campaigners risk imprisonment and even death. So we really have a duty to do what we can to amplify their voices. So we do a lot of work amplifying the voices of LGBT rights Ghana. Just go on Twitter, find it, tweet what they're saying, to spread the word, to tell others uh, around the world, and of course in your own country, about what is happening to LGBT plus people in Ghana. That's really simple, really easy, but it makes a big difference. And for people in Ghana, it's a huge emotional and psychological boost for them to know that there are people in Western countries who understand what they're going through and support them. You know, I cannot underestimate, or cannot overestimate, <laughs> rather, the, um, the importance of international solidarity. Well, particularly since we have some of our right-wing brethren who are funding and supporting the homophobic elements in those countries. So we kind of need all of our efforts as well to counteract that. Absolutely. You, with 50 years of activism, me with 25, both of us 71, other people our age, we're kind of the elder statesmen of, of LGTB activism. Uh, what do you think about the next generation of LGBTQ activists in the UK? I've, I've uh, been introduced to and will be interviewing um, Mohsin Zaidi uh, next, and he's someone who's kind of, I think, coming up behind us to fulfill uh, the next group of people who are leading the, the charge. What, are, what do you know about and feel about that generation of leaders? Well, first let me say, yes, I am 71. I've been doing this for 56 years but I have absolutely no intention of retiring. <laughs> I plan to carry on for another 20, 25 years health willing. My grandfather on my paternal side, who I take after, he lived to be 97. He was very fit and active until his mid nineties. So hopefully I'll take after him and maybe even go a bit longer. But having said that, of course, we need new generations all the time. We need to renew and replenish the campaign base. And 
there is a whole new generation of activists coming forward. But I've got to say that they are much more attuned to the methods of the 21st century. So it's much more online, um, online petitions, online campaigns, uh, videos, all those kind of things, which is great. But I still think you need actual physical protests because it's great to click on a petition. That's fantastic. I encourage it. But no one knows you've done it. It's a private act hidden away. Whereas when you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people march in the streets, that shows just how big and strong we are. It sends a very clear, visible message that this is a movement. It isn't just a handful of individuals clicking on their keyboards. This is a movement. And all throughout history, movements have been essential to social change. A physical manifestation movement has been necessary. So, you know, I think that street protests, of course, is not the only way, but they are an important ingredient. And I don't think there's enough of them nowadays. There are some, and they're great, but I think a lot of people do have the view that on LGBT plus rights in Britain, we've more or less won the battle and that there's just a bit of mopping up to do and that it'll all happen in due course. <laughs> never, never, never take anything for granted. We have to keep campaigning in our many different diverse ways, but including, I think, a public visibility to show that we are here, we're queer, and we're not going away. You know, when I interview someone like you who's so accomplished and has been doing this for such a long time, we always, I always find that talking about our private and personal lives takes short shrift. How have you managed to have five relationships with everything you're doing? And who the heck can find time in your life to be your partner? Well, that's a very good and pertinent question. And I've got to say that one of the reasons for the breakdown of some of those relationships was that people just couldn't stand the pressure. And I understand that, you know. You know, I, I work very long hours. I'm under constant threats to kill me. I've been physically violently attacked many, many times in the street. And that's a real tough one for anyone who's having a relationship with me. So sometimes that has you know, led to relationships, you know, falling apart. I remember one very notable occasion, I was dating a guy for the first time, inviting him home for dinner. And as we sat down for dinner, a brick came crashing through the window, <laughs> bouncing across the dinner table and sending crockery and food in all directions, including across our faces. The guy was very apologetic. He said, look, I, I really admire you, but I just can't act this. Like, I can't live with this. I'm fortunately now in, in a relationship with someone um, who has a very similar high-powered job in art and design. That keeps him very busy. So um, my weird hours uh, are not too, much of a, not too much of a problem. You give, you give the, those of who are single hope. I, I look forward to the same. One final question. Well, two. What's been your most abiding pleasure in, in all of the activities you've been involved with? And what do you hope you'll most be remembered for? Well, I think the greatest pleasure has been the activism. You know, to think that I've been part of a series of movements that have brought about such monumental changes in British and global history. I'm, of course, just a small cog, but it takes many small cogs to make a great wheel. Um, so, you know, it's it's together that we make the change. And that's been an incredible 
morale boost for me. And what sort of keeps me going, despite all the adversity of the death threats and the hate mail, what keeps me going is knowing that I am helping make change. And I'm not alone, that there are other people working with me, that we together uh, are, are making that change happen. So that that's that to me is 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 a great great pleasure and honor. Now I feel so lucky. Now when I think of the state of LGBT plus rights when I began in the late 1960s and compare it to now, boy, we're, we're almost we're not just in a different century. We are in an almost different world and era. Well, we are in a different era, and you know things have changed so 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 dramatically. At least in Western countries, if not in many countries of the global south. So that's that to me is, has has been the pleasure and honor and privilege of my life. In terms of how I'll be remembered, um, I'll leave that to others, but I would say that I hope people will know that I tried my best. I gave it my best shot. I did what I could. And sometimes that involves some, some, some tough choices and difficult choices. I didn't always get it right. Sometimes I got it wrong, you know, I accept that, but you know, overall, I hope people know will know that I, I did my best, and with others, contributed to some really positive changes that have uplifted a lot of people's lives. Well, I would tend to agree with your self-assessment, uh, and I want to thank you very much for uh, illuminating for my audience and and helping us have a better sense of what has motivated you and inspired you and and the kind of battle plan that you've used to achieve everything you've managed to accomplish. Thanks for spending the time with us today, Peter Thatchell. Thank you, Mike, and your listeners. Can I just finish by saying that um, if anybody wants to find out more, of course, please go and watch the Netflix documentary, Hating Peter Thatchell, but also go to my website, petertatchellfoundation.org. Uh, in the top right-hand corner, there's a little button which says, join us. If you give us your email address, we will send your weekly bulletin on a range of LGBT plus and other human rights issues. Most of them quite serious, but we try and every now and then include a funny, quirky one to give you a laugh. It's totally free. There's no charge. And if you're really enthusiastic, next to the join us button is the donate button where you can perhaps donate to help our work because we don't get any organizational or charitable foundation funding. We are a charity, but we don't get charity funding. So we depend entirely on donations from well-wishers. So if you're in a position to donate, that would be great. Finally, I'll just finish with my motto, which is don't accept the world as it is. Dream of what the world could be and then help make it happen. Thank you. Keep up the good fight. Thank you. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker, recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Lay.